but today we're very pleased to have the chance to welcome Taylor Petrie back to Harvard. Taylor did his, um, both his MTS and his doctorate here at the Divinity School. Um, he worked in New Testament and early Christianity as a doctoral student and um, uh, is now a professor, the Linda Hinsdale Stone, it says here assistant professor, that's outdated, you've been promoted, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm not sure to what, um, but he is um, a professor of religion at Kalamazoo College. Uh, his doctoral dissertation became the basis for his first book, which was published by Rutledge, entitled Resurrecting Parts, Early Christians on Desire, Reproduction, and Sexual Difference. Um, you can see from that book title how it segues into his current project. Um, he, his background in... New Testament and early Christianity provided exactly the tools he needed to continue into his secondary interest in Mormon studies, uh, where he'll be taking us today. Um, he has already published several articles that are contributing to the book project that, um, that you are going to hear about. Um, the, the Overall book project, of which we'll be hearing a small part today, is entitled Divining Gender, Mormonism, and Sexual Difference. And I'll just mention um, the most recently published small piece of this that came out, uh, which appeared in the current issue of the Harvard Theological Review, and that's Rethinking Mormonism's Heavenly Mother, which I commend to all of you. Um, so without further ado, we'll ask Taylor to inform us about the Mormon homosexual. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be able to present to this group and to have so many people um, come and join me. Am I, am I speaking closely enough to the microphone? It's okay? All right. <clears throat> so uh, as, as Anne mentioned, this is a small segment of a part of a larger project uh, called Divining Gender, Sexual Difference in Mormon Thought or Mormonism and Sexual Difference. I don't know. I'll figure that all out eventually at some point. And uh, what I'm looking at is I'm considering the ways that gender and sexuality have been really crucial to the way that Mormonism has engaged with modernity, um, sometimes radically challenging gender and sexual norms and sometimes really adopting them very rigidly. Um, and uh, so the overall project is exploring what I consider to be really an unstable binary between heterosexual and homosexual and male and female in Mormon thought. So I'm looking at the various sort of gaps and fissures uh, uh, in, those, uh, in those binaries. This is a theological project in part, but at the same time I'm working to do historical genealogies on the history of sexuality and marriage and Mormonism. And uh, uh, some of the theological work I've already started, as, as Anne mentioned, and it forms the background to some of my current research. So I just wanted to briefly introduce it uh, uh, up here. Uh, the first article that I did on this is towards a post-heterosexual Mormon theology, which was really kind of sketching out um, uh, some of these uh, basic ideas. And, and my project began with this essay that attempted to first describe the theological problem that non-heterosexuality poses within Mormonism and second, to propose some options for rethinking how to accommodate same-sex and queer relationships within Mormonism by appealing to alternative strands of thought in that tradition. So the theological problem in brief in Mormonism 
is that Mormons believe that God is in a heterosexual relationship with a divine female figure. Uh, and these beings sexually reproduce in order to create the spirits for human beings. And uh, this relationship then provides a template for all human relationships and supposedly leaves no space then for non-heterosexual relationships because they're both considered non-reproductive and because they exclude either the male or the female depending on their configuration and therefore are not complementary. So this idea that, that uh, God is in a reproductive heterosexual marriage relationship is certainly heretical uh, in, in broader Christian thought, and it really makes no sense in any kind of ontological uh, understanding. If you press on this, it doesn't go very far ontologically. That, that's fine. Um, and, but Mormons seem to not be really concerned about that question, in part because the, the, the kind of theolo theologizing that Mormons are interested in really isn't about God, it's always about human beings. So to do theological work in Mormonism is always to do a theological anthropology. Um, so uh, so they, Mormons haven't been particularly troubled by really the big ontological holes in this approach uh, because they're more interested in what it means to, uh, to be human. So, um, so in this essay, I explore various options for rethinking Mormon theology that are not constrained by heterosexual normativity. And I'm looking at different kinds of non-heterosexual relationships, forms of kinship and reproduction that already exist within Mormon thought. I kind of expand this theological project in a second essay that was mentioned also, Rethinking Mormonism's Heavenly Mother. Uh, and I look more specifically at the divine couple in Mormonism, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother as they're known. So in this essay, I'm particularly concerned with Mormon feminist analysis of Heavenly Mother that has seen her existence and divine status as a kind of liberatory ideal for women. And I note that this framework shares a lot in common with feminist philosopher Lusa Rigore, who also called for a divine woman as a grounding for female subjectivity in the 1980s and, and beyond. However, I make note that feminist and queer critiques of a Rigore's divine woman uh, uh, argue that, this, uh, that her turn to religion hypostasized heterosexuality, complementarianism, and uh, gender essentialism. And I argue that these same critiques are applicable to the Mormon feminist notion of a heavenly mother, which both explicitly and implicitly engages in heteronormativity. So while arguing that the heavenly mother figure is crucial to maintain, I again point to theological resources that I see within Mormonism that would challenge the heteronormativity of Mormon theology and therefore its theological anthropology. And I look to homoerotic tensions in the traditional accounts of the all-male godhead while remaining critical of the phallocentric descriptions of those. And I also use trans and gender fluid analysis to look at the ways that Mormons have described Christ's atonement on behalf of, woman, of women. So that's some of the theological background here. And uh, I have turned uh, to the historical uh, in, in this next section. I'm going to be presenting a little bit of that to you today. Um, to think about how Mormons, besides the theological space, space have also thought about homosexuality as a therapeutic uh, problem as well. Uh, in addition to this, there's a whole other thing about how Mormons have thought about homosexuality as a political problem, which I'm not going to talk about, okay? But the theological, the political, and the therapeutic are sort of the three major discourses that Mormons have adopted for thinking about homosexuality. So I'm going to present just a portion of, uh, of that work uh, here today. 
my approach in this uh, sort of history, history here is, a pro is informed by a history of sexuality model that examines the construction of the homosexual as a discursive project. And I'm arguing that LDS approaches to homosexuality have been heavily influenced by conservative Christian discourse about homosexuality, which also drew on the same psychological and pathological language. It's worth noting here that for Mormons, the problem of the homosexual is a male problem. Women are rarely mentioned and usually in only in passing. So I just want to get that point out of the way that we'll confront a lot of really androcentric language for thinking about homosexuality in, in the materials that we're going to be looking at. But the story really begins uh, not long after World War II. And, and in brief, two major uh, trends happen are happening at the, about this time period. The first is that there's a rise in, uh, of the organization and visibility of gay subcultures in the United States. Um, sexologists and psychoanalysts had been categorizing and cataloging various sorts of sexual pathologies since the late 1800s, but, and subcultures were already forming in large cities, but after World War II, these, really, these networks really expand. Um, Alfred Kinsey's monumental report, The uh, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, was published in 1948, which also brought this issue uh, into, the popular, uh, into the popular realm, where people really started paying attention to this. The second thing that happens is that uh, Christians begin to decry a sort of moral laxity uh, during this uh, post-war period and speak in terms of reform uh, and focus a, a lot on uh, sexual purity. And what seems to be a kind of perfect storm is that after World War II, Mormons are also seeking to enter into the American mainstream to shed their polygamous reputation by adopting a strong version of family values. And in doing so, they uh, adopt this newly invented past of Protestant Christians that Christianity had always opposed homosexuality, and Mormons told this history as their own, which linked them to a broader Christian past. Um, Mormonism then follows for the next 50, 60 years a nearly identical trajectory uh, of other conservative churches who are also developing new pastoral and, thera and therapeutic techniques uh, uh, for homosexuality. Um, and one of the critical figures in the Mormon context is this uh, gentleman up on the board here, uh, Spencer W. Kimball. In 1947, uh, he is tasked with uh, developing a pastoral response to homosexuality. It fits right in that time period, uh, right after uh, World War II. Uh, at first, this was a very small-scale approach, and uh, uh, he did this primarily in private counseling sessions. But by the 1960s, he begins to speak out uh, on, and teach his views publicly about homosexuality. And this included for him a proper diagnosis of its causes. And so in a, a famous January 1965 speech, he warns, sometimes masturbation is the introduction to the more serious sins of exhibitionism and the gross sin of homosexuality. And then in 1969, he publishes his theory that masturbation is the cause of homosexuality in his uh, book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, which, remained, uh, which really remains still a, a very influential book in Mormon pastoral therapies. At the end of 1973, Kimball is installed as the president of the church, which gives added authority to his previous teachings and writings on homosexuality, and uh, really launches a, 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 a lot of attention to this issue in the 1970s, which I'll get to in a little bit more. But his books, speeches, and numerous pamphlets on, on this, many of which are still recommended today, drew on notions of homosexuality as a mental illness that could be cured, 
and uh, the pastoral care that he developed uh, uh, for, for thinking about this was deeply influenced by positive thinking movements such as New Thought uh, and other, uh, uh, other things that, other sort of early self-help ideologies that argued that um, if you can control your mind, then you can control the outcomes of this. So he, he quotes frequently from James Allen's As a Man Thinketh, this 1903 bestseller that's uh, sort of the, one of the classics of uh, this early self-help ideology. So this notion of a mind cure sets up how he approaches uh, homosexuality. A second major figure that's worth being aware of is uh, Boyd K. Packer. Um, he emerged as a vocal proponent uh, for cures of homosexuality in, in the 1970s as well. And is in his iconic speech, To the One, I have a quick quote up there, uh, he argues, uh, for centuries men have sought to find the cause of this condition. This is an essential step in developing a cure. And he goes through what he sees as the various arguments for, the, for its causes, namely what he calls a physical, perhaps he means a biological cause of homosexuality. And then he says, the next obvious place to look is the emotional or psychological part of our nature. Here we come closer, he admits. But, uh, but he says that psychologists have been pretty unsuccessful in treating homosexuality, and this is in 1978, and uh, says there must be a spiritual cause which is uh, behind all of this, in which he suggests it's selfishness. So uh, he says, where do we turn when the physical and the emotional treatments are only partly successful? To Latter-day Saints, the answer ought to be obvious. We turn to the spiritual nature. Have you explored the possibility that the cause, when found, will turn out to be a typical form of selfishness, selfishness in a very subtle form? Um, when one has the humility to admit that a spiritual disorder is tied to the perversion and selfishness rests at the root of it, already the way is open to the treatment of the condition. It is very possible to cure it by treating selfishness. So these theories that homosexuality is caused by masturbation or by uh, uh, selfishness were openly hostile to the competing ideologies of homosexuality as inborn and immutable. And, uh, but the, the interesting uh, flip side of all of this is that it also meant that anyone, any male at least, could be homosexual if they were too selfish or if they practiced masturbation. Okay? So they're, they're really working against these sort of essentialist ideologies of, uh, of uh, sexuality in order to leverage the possibility of change and ultimately a cure. Uh, and both uh, Packer and Kimball are very much into this sort of self-help idea of self-mastery as the framework uh, for, uh, for the cure. So I also want to mention that Packer and Kimball, the, the things that they're saying, are not particularly out of step with what other conservative Christians were saying at this, at this same period, okay? So uh, they, these ideas may sound very strange to us at our time, but they were very much within the, the mainstream of at least a certain kind of discourse about homosexuality during this time period. <coughs> So in these early years, in the 50s and 60s, uh, the LDS leaders had a really uneasy relationship with professional psychologists who often challenged or replaced their ecclesiastical authority. A really fun example of this is uh, as, uh, Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine in 1958, which uh, has an entry under psychiatry, and it says, see also Church of the Devil. Okay. <laughs> okay. So... He, he admits that there may be some benefits, 
but he says it is, in effect, a form of apostate religion. And he gives the specific example of a psychiatrist who might try and tell his client that uh, their guilt for masturbation should be readjusted because masturbation is not an evil. And he prescribes instead working with church leaders who have ecclesiastical authority uh, uh, to prescribe uh, uh, treatments for various sorts of mental disorders. And he says that if you uh, repent and obey your church leaders, that you will gain the mental and spiritual peace that overcomes mental disorders. So McConkie situates ecclesiastical counseling and psychological care as really opposites and, and not complementary at all. And uh, uh, really, there's, there's this sort of hostility. This was widely shared also in the 1960s. Um, Kimball, who I mentioned before, is working with bishops and sort of excoriating psychiatrists who, who he sees as being too uh, liberal on the issue of homosexuality. But this changes in the 1970s, um, where Latter-day Saints adopt, really uh, also under the, the uh, leadership of Kimball to a certain extent, uh, a dual approach to the treatment of homosexuality. First, the church is going to start publishing a, a whole set of new training materials that are for use in ecclesiastical counseling. Uh, I put up a, a number of them up here that are published in the 1970s, and I put one in the 1980s because that that's also a, uh, you know, a really influential one as well. And second, the church is going to supplement ecclesiastical counseling with local bishops and stake presidents with uh, professional therapists and counselors. It's going to hire and train its own group of professional therapists and counselors. This represents a really definitive change of uh, treating homosexuality as a moral issue to treating it as a psychological issue. And really the church is adopting uh, fully a psychological framework for thinking about homosexuality uh, during this time period. They produced all of this new literature, as I mentioned, on, uh, that, on targeting homosexuals. They developed new pastoral techniques and spiritual practices that would develop a cure, and eventually uh, new institutions that would produce knowledge about these topics. And I'll talk about those institutions in the, ne in the next slide here. Let me just briefly talk about this, that first one that's mentioned, Hope for, the Tran for Transgressors in 1970. This is the first pamphlet that the church publishes on homosexuality. It's authored, co-authored by Kimball, who we've already mentioned, and Marky e. Peterson. And uh, the document advises church leaders on how to pastorally respond to homosexual activity among their members. The church begins at this time to also adopt a sympathetic approach towards the homosexual, advocating kindness coupled with discipline, which was different from the really demonizing language that they were using before. So it says, it is therefore, speaking to the church leader, this is addressed to the church leader on how to counsel, it is therefore your responsibility to assist any such person to recover himself and become normal again. They can often be helped to a total cure by a kindly church official who understands. So as a regimen for the cure, they give several pieces of practical advice that should be passed on to the homosexual. First, he should abandon those with whom he is involved. And uh, it notes a, an interesting uh, aspect of the relationships that might exist. The many perverts will claim they have great love for some with whom they have been involved. But nevertheless, those ties must be broken. Second, the sinner should get rid of all reading materials related to homosexuality and instead focus on reading scripture. Third, uh, they should pray. Uh, fourth, rigorous supervision through mandatory confession is required. Quote, 
He should make a confidential report to you every few days at first and occasionally for a long time until he feels secure. And then finally, when you feel he is ready, he should be encouraged to date and gradually move his life toward the normal. So the, the language of the normal and the pervert, you see, is still very, very strong in this. Um, 1971, the next document is produced, New Horizons for Homosexuals. And this is, instead of being addressed to church leaders, is addressed directly to the homosexual, uh, the homosexual male, as you can see from the picture there. Again, this is a very uh, understood as a male problem. And this tract also functions as a kind of self-help document outlining various problems and solutions. Uh, it op it's, has this optimistic tone of a kind of self-willed uh, recovery. And uh, uh, it argues that uh, homosexuality is not natural or normal, and it promises, uh, again, total recovery from its tentacles. So in addition to the new literature, and again, all of the, that's the first time the church had published anything explicitly dealing with this topic. In the 1960s, it's like a sub, you know, version of a few sermons here and there, but in the 1970s, you see all this explosion of new literature. There's also an explosion of new uh, institutions that are tasked with dealing with this. The first and the most important is LDS Social Services, uh, which begins in, in uh, 1973. It takes on some previous uh, functions that had been sort of disparately organized in the church, but takes them, uh, takes them on. And it's headed up by a gentleman named Victor L. Brown, who is the author of that uh, book that I uh, have up there, picture human, human, human Intimacy, Illusion, and Reality. Brown spends a lot of his career thinking about homosexuality, and it becomes one of the primary uh, 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 features of the newly organized LDS social services. I already uh, mentioned the manual that was produced in 1973 as well on the previous, uh, previous page. That's, uh, there's the pamphlets, but there's also a whole manual that gets developed for church leaders and for church uh, uh, therapists who are involved in this kind of work. Also in the 1970s, you have the organization, uh, new organizations like the Association for Mormon Counselors and Psychotherapists, AMCAP. It devotes uh, uh, about half of its first issue and its first conference to the topic of homosexuality. Um, in the 19, uh, 1976, the Institute for Values and Human Behavior uh, begins at BYU. Uh, after Victor L. Brown had left LDS Social Services, he went to start an independent research, issue, uh, research institute at BYU that would be devoted to finding secular evidence to support the church's position on homosexuality and cures. And there are a handful of other organizations uh, that, that start in later years, Evergreen, North Star, uh, the church has numerous uh, uh, officials that are closely involved with NARTH, which is one of the big reparative therapy organizations. And uh, there are numerous uh, private practices that focus with LDS clients, including, these are just a few that I just quickly found, the Center for Gender Wholeness, Journey into Manhood, the Guardrail, and, and several others. So uh, what's Victor Brown doing in the 1970s? Well, he's really pioneering a new approach to homosexuality among Latter-day Saints that is adopting the, uh, uh, the therapeutic and psychological models that he's seeing happening in other uh, conservative movements as well. So that 1973 manual that I mentioned before says that many active Latter-day Saints involved in homosexuality are seeking the same companionship and emotional intimacy that others seek. They usually find it and are thus, they usually are unable to find it and are thus lonely and insecure. 
this leads towards homosexuality. So the approach that's adopted here is seeing homosexuality as an emotional deficit rather than as caused by masturbation or by selfishness or, or something like that, right? So you, we start to see an, an emotional explanation. Um, so these ideas are widely held in conservative Christian circles in the 1970s, and in the, in the 1970s we begin to also see new uh, 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 ex-gay ministries popping up that look very similar to the way that LDS Social Services is treating this issue. Um, this represented a kind of the high point in the hope of science to vindicate conservative teachings about homosexuality and uh, to combat what they saw as the dangerous spread of homosexuality. If homosexuality were mutable and changeable and curable by choice, then it would not be deserving of legality, respectability, or civil rights. So there's a lot at stake in, in solving this issue. So um, other ex-gay ministries that are starting in the 1970s include Frank Worthen's 1973 Love in Action, which uh, becomes full-time in 1977, Anita Bryant's 1978 uh, Anita Bryant Ministries that works to help homosexuals who want to be delivered from that kind of lifestyle, that's the language, and Exodus International, the most famous ex-gay organization, was founded in 1976 and uh, though built on earlier institutions and, and local ministries like Love in Action. So all of these approaches, the LDS ones and the, uh, these other conservative Christian ones are combining therapy, psychoanalysis, science, and with the biblical prohibitions on homosexuality. And they prescribed similar kinds of treatments, prayer, scripture study, worship, mechanisms of supervision and surveillance, and uh, a requirement to break off all ties with other known uh, uh, homosexuals. So all of these are kind of share, you see they're kind of sharing in the similar sorts of approaches. Um, let's see, so what, but what does it tell us that Latter-day Saints are forming their own institutions rather than uh, uh, developing them uh, directly with their religious peers? Well. Latter-day Saints are uh, closely following these same institutions. As we can see, there's a lot of overlap in the sorts of approaches. But Latter-day Saints are also preferring their own rather than joining with other religious groups. I think this is a part of a broader strategy in the way that the religious right is organizing itself uh, 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 around maintaining individual and exclusive claims to truth in each uh, of the major um, groups, the Catholics, Evangelicals, and Mormons who are part of this. Uh, while at the same time sharing uh, a broad set of knowledge and approaches to, to issues uh, such as homosexuality. Okay, what else is happening uh, at, at this time period? Um, this a uh, little off uh, center there, so it's hard to read it now, okay? But uh, Affirmation is the first uh, gay and lesbian organization. It's founded in 1977 by a group of gay men and women in Los Angeles. Um, this is uh, uh, from their first newly launched newsletter in 1980 here. Uh, and it's committed to, this organization is committed to getting the prophet to receive a new revelation that would authorize, authorize and sanction homosexuality. Uh, for many in the LDS LGBT community, this remains an explicit goal. I was actually just at the affirmation conference this last weekend. And heard this same goal expressed numerous times of a call for a new revelation on, uh, on homosexuality. So Mormons start to, uh, again, we see the same pattern, Mormon uh, homosexuals start to take on this identity and start to advocate for social change uh, within the church. Uh, this also happens at the same time that 
Uh, I think the Methodist organization is also called Affirmation. The Catholic organization is called Dignity, I believe. And there are, these are all starting in the late 1970s. So just as we see the church developing new institutions, we see gay and lesbian Mormons developing new institutions as well. Oh, man, you really need to see this one. I don't know why this isn't working here. Okay. Uh, let me just see if this will help. Does that help? Okay. All right. Okay. So one of the new institutions that starts is, for the first time, there comes to be an independent, or at least semi-independent, uh, uh, gay ministry. Uh, and it's called Evergreen. This is uh, their flyer, their first flyer, uh, advertising their first conference in 1990. It's organized initially by about a dozen uh, gay men and therapists in 1989, and they really get launched in uh, uh, 1990. Um, you can see here uh, uh, the ex-gay rhetoric. You don't have to be gay. Can homosexuality be overcome? Yes, it can, and so on. And uh, the main theme here is developing a healthy male identity. I always feel really bad for Janet. I don't know if you can see Janet, the third testimonial down, who's developing a healthy male identity. This is going to go hor horribly wrong for her, okay? Um, but uh, you see some testimonials there about, about all of this. Um, uh, so uh, what, what this conference promises to, to do is to, is to, quote, cover new and previously overlooked thinking about the origins of homosexuality, and is really adopting uh, uh, explicitly these psychodevelopmental theories uh, and psychodevelopmental cures, and, quote, to explore the stages of growth out of homosexuality into a healthy male identity. Evergreen and most Mormon organizations never fully embrace the quote-unquote ex-gay label for itself, but it shares the same approach, the same rhetoric, and, and the same promises, and develops a number of important connections between uh, broader networks of reparative therapy organizations. At this first conference, it advertises two, leader, quote, two leaders of the ex-gay movement and uh, to provide counselors who specialize in this area. Uh, among the people who are involved with this organization are uh, uh, people who also serve in, uh, for the, uh, who also work for the church in the LDS social services. It becomes LDS family services in 1995. Uh, but there are close relationships between this organization and uh, church employees and church officials who are in charge of this, uh, this kind of work. Um, many of those same psychologists were also trained by uh, Nicolosi and other uh, uh, pioneers of the ex-gay uh, movement, and are, these people all become involved with NARTH as well. So Evergreen actually closes in 2012. I think that's the year before Exodus International closes. Uh, and, and it gets folded into another organization that does not take this same approach. So there's a sort of brief, not I wouldn't say too brief, but a flourishing of these movements that then kind of dies out as well. Um, and uh, a lot of this has to do with the kind of crisis of the failures of these therapeutic approaches. So just to bring us a little bit closer to the present, um, the, the, uh, two, in 2007, the church publishes a new pamphlet. There are a number in between uh, the 70s and 2007. I don't have time to discuss all of them, so I'll just jump to this one here. Uh, this one is called God Loveth His Children. 
and it uh, remains today. It's distributed to local church leaders, and it's the primary document used in ecclesiastical counseling today. Um, the document invites the homosexual reader, it's addressed to the homosexual reader, to meet with church leaders and with therapists, and um, it uh, in particular advises them to only work with, quote, professional counselors who are experienced in working with same-gender attraction issues, and those, who count, and those whose counsel is consistent with gospel teaching. So there's still, even though there's the use of therapists, there remains a really strong uh, control on which kinds of therapists are, are approved. Um, the document notes that many overcome same-gender attraction in mortality, but that others do not. And the document emphasizes uh, 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 this interesting quote here that I want to highlight. As we follow Heavenly Father's plan, our bodies, feelings, and desires will be perfected in the next life so that every one of God's children may find joy in a family consisting of a husband, a wife, and children. And I want to emphasize that's a husband, a wife, and a children in the next life. And here we see this understanding of Mormon theology sort of finally coming back to have some influence on the therapeutic models uh, uh, that are, that are uh, operative. So while change in this life remains the goal, it's ultimately uh, left as a kind of mystery that it may not always happen. And there's an acknowledgement that, it may not always, that uh, change may not always happen. It still emphasizes self-mastery and self-control as a way of avoiding immoral thoughts, but especially actions. And it distinguishes between thoughts and actions uh, thoughts as not necessarily being considered sinful, but actions as being uh, considered, considered thin, sinful. So here we see the Latter-day Latter Saint uh, therapeutic document starting to deal with uh, the possibilities of failure. We move away from the total cure and the total recovery of that earlier era to a kind of uh, a possibility of the, of the, the acceptance of Latter-day Saints identifying as gay and recognizing themselves as not uh, uh, being able to, what, what the language would be, totally recover into heterosexuality. So, um, but I want to note the very serious criticism that has been made of this theological innovation. It's, it appears in this manual in 2007. I've been able to date it only to 2002 as the earliest version that I can find where Latter-day Saints are starting to argue, well, it may not be healed now, but it will be healed in the afterlife. But it suggests that it will be better after you're dead. Right? And th this is part of the you know, huge cr criticism of this, uh, of this particular uh, uh, approach. So just to highlight a few of the things that we've talked about, LDS discourse on homosexuality, uh, 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 I'm, I'm sort of trying to trace the rise of a new set of discourses about homosexuality and Mormonism. I want to pay attention to the new attention that the issue receives beginning in the 1970s with new literature that's developed, uh, new disciplinary techniques in terms of pastoral care, confession, and spiritual practices, and the forming of new institutions that produce knowledge and power uh, within Latter-day Saint communities on this, on this subject. Despite the distinctive theology, Latter-day Saint therapeutic approaches have largely followed the trends of conservative Christians in these areas, with only really that minor uh, uh, difference at the end there that I noted at the end. The pathological framework for thinking about homosexuality owes its origins to the 1950s and 60s, and therapeutic approaches emerge in the 1970s. Uh, these are in lockstep with other conservative Christians who are doing the exact same thing in the exact same decades. Both the pathological and therapeutic frameworks rely on this psychological discourse for thinking about homosexuality. 
Latter-day Saint opposition to homosexuality as well as the Equal Rights Amendment, which we didn't talk too much about, and other family values discourses created an opportunity for Latter-day Saints to assimilate with other conservative Christians and to take on a, a Christian identity and form these loose coalitions with other partners on these, on these issues. Um, so just as Mormons were seeking to secure their status as both American and Christian in the, uh, in the uh, period after World War II, uh, the family becomes an important vehicle for achieving that. Uh, reparative therapy remains the dominant model for addressing uh, non-heterosexuality within Mormonism. Um, ecclesiastical counselors are uh, 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 not the only way for dealing with this, but also this entire professional therapy organization that the church maintains. It's not, ex I should mention that it's not exclusively dedicated to that issue. It's one of the things that they deal with, but, but uh, uh, it's a, it, it receives a lot of prominent attention. Um, so, uh, let's see. So, ultimately, I think I'm arguing also, you know, all these are tentative, I'm still figuring all this out, that Mormon theology has had only minimal influence on the therapeutic approach. Uh, the most discernible place that it does have some uh, impact is actually in making allowances for the fa failure of therapy and for the potential durability of what it calls same-sex attraction. Uh, because Mormon conceptions of the afterlife, because of Mormon conceptions of the afterlife, a total cure is rendered unnecessary in this life, and uh, uh, the expectation to marry, to produce, to be heterosexual can be deferred to the next life. So, that's where we're at today. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taylor. Um, I have a feeling there's going to be discussion. I know that some people have one o'clock classes, so we understand uh, if you have to um, make a quick exit, and we'll give you 30 seconds to do so. Um, uh, and can we just open it up for sure. questions and discussion? Is there any other contextualizing that you want to provide for the discussion? or? Because this um, is part of a large, much larger project. Yeah, yeah, this is a little slice into it, and hopefully, you know, yeah, I, I still have a lot of thinking to do about it. It's just, it's relatively fresh still. But, yeah, any, any questions or feedback would be helpful. Great, great. Thank you, Nan. Oh, thank you very much for a very interesting and treatment of a complex subject. You mentioned uh, disciplining, and so is our Mormon... Uh, Gay Mormons eligible for the priesthood? Are they excommunicated? Do they do temple work? I mean, what kind of disciplining things are going on now? Yeah, yeah. So the disciplinary uh, uh, methods change over time, okay? Uh, in those early days, what it meant to be homosexual was uh, 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 sort of blurry, right? So if one expressed homosexual desires, would that be itself grounds for discipline or not, was a, a big debate. It gets resolved uh, so that now homosexual desires are not considered to be uh, uh, actionable for discipline, but uh, homosexual practice, quote unquote, practice is, right? What exactly that means? Does it mean holding hands? Does it mean, you know, what, what, does it mean a, a hug that's too long? What exactly does that mean is, is you know, still kind of fuzzy, right? Um, but uh, uh, mostly the repentant homosexual, as it as would be referred to, would not be subject necessarily to excommunication, uh, though there may be some 
disciplinary techniques or dis disciplinary measures that stop short of that, okay? Uh, but uh, uh, someone who, as the church understands it, does not desire to change is, uh, uh, would be subject to excommunication. This this organization is called uh, called Affirmation. It goes through. It has its own history that's worth you know spending some time on too. But it's originally an advocacy group that is trying to soften soften LDS attitudes towards homosexuality and ultimately get homosexuality to be authorized and accepted within the church. Um, as many activist organizations, it quickly loses. Uh, that optimism and turns to an adversarial, uh, uh, has an adversarial position with respect to the church um, and maintains that adversarial relationship for a long time. Today, or really over the last five years or so, uh, it's tried to become an umbrella organization for both Latter-day Saints who are disaffected and, and angry at the church and, and, and uh, um, opposed to the church and also Latter-day Saints who want to remain within it and are finding ways of reconciling their identity within, within the church. Uh, and then the various subgroups of both of those as well. So right now it's a kind of umbrella organization for both, uh, for both kinds. Yeah. Yes? I don't know. I can only I can only guess uh, that it's men who are thinking about this and think about it as as primarily the the, the issue that they're that they're addressing. Um, there are more cases that they're aware of, at least you know. So that's uh, when they're talking about the counseling sessions that they're in. It's always with uh, it's always with other men, um, and uh, I think a lot of it has to do with. The, you know, we didn't talk about this, but the, one of the ways that Latter-day Saints are thinking about homosexuality is as a failure of masculinity. So you saw, you know, the evergreen uh, uh, thing saying, you know, you need to develop a healthy male identity, right? So maleness and homosexuality are seen to be uh, opposites, right? And you have to, in order to be male, you have to not be homosexual, right? So um, that, uh, the, the, maybe the crisis around masculinity is a big, is a big part of it, the threat to, to masculinity that it poses. Uh, question back here. Oh, hey. Um, my question follows on dance, which is um, with the shift from the uh, sort of condemnatory language to the sort of embracing <coughs> of the repentant form of homosexual, do you see um, a rise of uh, public repentance mm -hmm. um, as a kind of emblem for other um, would be repentance mm -hmm. and or are repentant homosexuals? Um, whether fully cured or not, allowed into positions of power, influence, or Yeah. Um, okay. So the first one, um, you get what you, what what you start to see in the 
uh, exodus, or the evergreen literature, for instance, are these testimonials of people who have been cured, right? And so you go from the language of the church authority saying there are numerous cases of people having been cured, which was the dominant way, to then trying to give those people themselves a voice. So, uh, uh, so you see uh, a rise of that, and in the, in the uh, 2000s, the church starts to publish anonymous, interestingly, they're all, they all say name withheld, okay, but anonymous accounts in the church magazine, the enzyme of people who, who said that they've been cured okay? uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, um, uh, so yeah, you're, get, you're getting people starting to, to speak in, in that way. Um, whether or not the repenting homosexual can hold positions of power is kind of perhaps a local uh, decision in a lot of ways, and it will vary from um, area to area. There are uh, a number of, you know, uh, 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 practicing, you know, I hate this language, but practicing homosexuals, right, who actually do have callings and who the church, local church officials will just ignore the church rules on this issue. Uh, others that will be much more strict and others that uh, uh, will, you know, say that you can't, uh, you can't hold any position, you can't, you know, especially you can't teach children. I mean, you still have a lot of that. That's not official, that's just going to be done local, you know, how, how a local leader might decide it. Well, in the 1890s, the church really abandons polygamy as, a, as an official practice. So, um, so in a way, the church has really has tried ever since to reform its image as a you know monogamous. It's still practiced, but in uh, schismatic groups that have broken away from the, the main church. Um, how they deal with the issue of homosexuality, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, that's a whole separate topic, but yeah. Um, so you talked about that that, uh, that affirmation is beginning to phrase their desires in terms of woman thought itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm seeing a, a, like a slight disconnection between the official authorities not invoking woman thought as like an adjustment to the therapeutic practice, mm -hmm. but but. The, on the flip side of the counter discourse, there is an engagement and a re-engagement of woman on its own terms to, to make the case for inclusion, yeah. including like we need new revelation. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you see happening in that sort of discrepancy that the authorities are not actually using thought and yeah. <laughs> those that are allegedly outside are? Yeah. Uh, it's a tension that's been going on for so long, I don't know if it's going to change, you know, but it's, yeah, but, but you're absolutely right to identify uh, both as claiming, trying to claim uh, authority within the Mormon tradition, right? One is around, uh, is around continuity, one is around an issue of, uh, uh, you know, the, the possibility of change, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that debate's going to continue, I suspect. Yes, uh, I think that in the original, it was a very small group initially, and I think that there was one woman 
I remember the, the history correctly. Um, and, you know, you, uh, we'd have to go back to it, but um, it's, Janet. what's that? No. Oh, not Janet. Not oh, yeah. <laughs> Janet's in, uh, in Evergreen, well, yeah. sometimes people move. <laughs> <laughs> so affirmation starts as, I, you know, recognizably gay and lesbian. And this is part of that alliance of gays and lesbians that's happening as well, right? Um, I think, I want to say it's not until 2010 that it becomes LGBT. Uh, and, and maybe now it's LGBTQ or something like that. But, but was originally, a gay, you know, within that history, a gay and lesbian organization that then <laughs> has had to kind of readjust in the adding the B's and the T's. All right, yeah, I'd like to pick up on the theme that one of the ways to be cured is to marry, mm -hmm. to begin to date and to marry. And there's such a very publicly known history of that in Mormonism, particularly through the work of Carol Lynn Pearson, where women, as I understand it, have spoken out about you're using us to solve this problem. I wonder if you are going to deal with that in this part of the project and what you might say about maybe particularly Carolyn, because that's yeah. such a dramatic story. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, this is contested because the church maintains a lot of plausible deniability around whether <laughs> or not it's advocating marriage. So. Um, in the 1980s, uh, there are a couple of clear statements by uh, uh, two, two church leaders, El Elder Oaks and President Hinckley, that, or Elder Hinckley at the time, who both say marriage is not a therapeutic, approach, uh, a therapeutic step to dealing with homosexuality. I think, that's, I think that's the quote. But they also maintain that once you are cured of homosexuality, then you should get married. Right? Um, so that's where there's this sort of plausible deniability around it. Um, and uh, that continues up until today, the, the 2012 website, uh, which I didn't talk about, but is uh, the, the sort of most up-to-date. Uh, it's called mormonsandgays.org, and it was produced by the church. And it also has a similar statement, we don't encourage marriage as a, as a solution, but some people you know, do overcome homosexuality, and then they should get married. So um, uh, yeah, this, the, that, that history is ongoing. And there are, of course, a number of... Uh, uh, famous examples of this, uh, you know, there was a documentary, or not a documentary, a reality TV show produced a couple of years ago, My Husband's Not Gay, uh, on TLC, which was based around these quote-unquote mixed orientation families where there's a, and it's always a gay husband and a straight wife, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that this, it still is practiced in some ways, yeah. Are you Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I hope to. I hope to. And, and one of the interesting things that's happening, well, it's you know, it's it's happening in the uh, earlier discourse about scientific discourse about homosexuality is the conflation of you know of transgender issues and homosexuality, right? Uh, and Mormons are doing the same thing, at least up until the 1970s uh, as well, where and this is what you know, homosexuality is a failed masculinity, right? There's 
uh, uh, this notion that you know you're, you're identifying too much as a woman or, or something along something along those lines. So I, I hope to untangle that a little bit more. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can we just get this question then? Thank you very much for asking, especially the links between the Christianities. In some cases, uh, anticipating, in some cases, following. Um, but I'm actually more interested in the theological point about the, the fate of, of all redeemed persons in a heterosexual or reproductive marriage in heaven. Um, this may be a very well trodden conversation, but how do Mormons relate that to the New Testament idea that the heavenly fate is actually a sexual? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Mormons have uh, new revelations and new scriptures, which more or less either reinterpret or supplant those, uh, those traditions. So, for, exa for example, here, uh, there shall neither be marriage, neither be marrying nor giving in marriage, right? Um, is reinterpreted to mean for those who are not sealed in Mormon temples, there will no be there. Will, you know. So it's uh, the the damned the the, you know, the damned isn't the quite the right language, but the unsaved won't have that, and and marriage is saved for those who are in the in the category of the saved. So there are there are numerous ways. I mean, that's that's yeah, that they're dealing with this. Uh, oh, well, I would say that right now, I mean, crisis is maybe too strong of a word, Some, but something approaching that uh, among many Latter-day Saints who are really wrestling with, with this issue within, within the tradition. Um, just anecdotally, you know, the higher leadership of the church goes around to uh, all over the world and gives, uh, you know, talks and, and so on, and then they often open it up for questions at the end. and. I don't think that there's been a time when they haven't been asked about this issue in the last several years. Um, so it certainly is on the mind of, uh, of a number of people. Um, there was a, a controversial policy that was passed in November that um, uh, required that any uh, gay marriage, any same-sex marriage that occurred would be immediate grounds for excommunication and the children of anyone uh, 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 who was, uh, of any parents who were in a same-sex marriage would also not be uh, permitted to be baptized into the church. Um, and this caused a huge stir among a n number of Mormons who would normally be considered very faithful and loyal to the church as well. So um, 
there are, there are these conversations happening. Whether or not that's going to result in a greater you know, intellectual engagement with these issues by the church, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But, but you know, there, there, yeah, there, there's a moment of discontent. Um, some yes and some no. Um, I, think, I think that uh, last I checked, the post-heterosexual Mormon theology article had been downloaded about 20,000 times. Um, and, uh, that, but it also exists in a PDF, so it can be you know, circulated without, without being able to track that. So it's, it's getting some, you know, 20,000 is a lot for an academic article on Mormon theology, right? But it's not necessarily, I mean, there are also millions of Mormons. So I, I don't know, I don't know what kind of impact it's having. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can I follow up on that question of, uh, about whether what we do matters? Um, I've been so intrigued by the idea of constructive Mormon theology in general. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can tell us about a little bit about the status of that project and practice and who does it and how it's viewed and how your project relates to other projects in constructive form and theology. Oh. Um, the dominant subfields of Mormon interest are around history, primarily, and uh, historical apologetics. And these are kind of the two main, like, things that people read. But theology has had a little bit of a comeback in the last decade. Um, there was a kind of, you know, the church was sort of opposed to theology in, in certain respects. You know, we, have, we teach doctrine, not theology, and a kind of anti-theological uh, 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 tenor, right? Um, but, uh, but there's been a kind of revival of, uh, of theology as a, as a field. There's a Mormon theology seminar, which is a meeting uh, that you know, brings in people to, to, to do this kind of work. Um, the engagement of gender and sexuality in Mormon theology has been primarily in feminist circles. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been going on since the 1980s uh, and was largely ignored by uh, other male Mormon theologians. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been happening in, around, and, but it's, it's, it doesn't have a, a huge, you know, it's not its, not, it's, not its own major subfield, right? There, there's only one very small organization that's dedicated to doing Mormon theology, and, and it, yeah, it meets sporadically because the leadership kind of can't get their stuff together, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. They'll but. be calling you soon. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that starts in response to the um, psychologists who come in and who start saying that uh, it's failed father, fatherly relationships. So that guy, Victor Brown, that I was talking about earlier, has a whole training manual that he gives to all of the church author general authorities where he says the fathers, you know, the failure of fathers is the cause here. Weak fathers, we need good, strong patriarchs in the home who aren't, you know, who don't subscribe to democratic you know, parenting, you know, 
All, the, the, all of those things are the cause of homosexuality. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and then there's a backlash by Mormon parents <laughs> who are like, uh, we're not, it's not our fault here, right? Um, so, uh, but yeah, father and then overbearing mothers, you know, so all the same kinds of things that are happening in, in broader um, conservative psychological circles, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would say that almost, almost word for word that that would be something that you would hear from, a, from an LDS therapist, yeah. But do yeah. you see it, like, do you see there being a tension in the question of, like, a, a personal God that, that yeah. created humans? Oh, oh. Um, well, Mormon theologies of creation are, uh, are maybe, maybe a little bit relevant here because, um, God is not necessarily considered to be the creator of the individual spirit, I guess. Uh, though there's some tension. I mentioned that he's the father of, of those spirits, but, but not necessarily an ex nihilo notion of, of creation either. So um, the tension isn't so much around creation, but it is a notion of... Uh, but th this is the counter-discourse that gay and lesbian Mormons and LGBT Mormons are saying, well, I was created this way too, right? Like God did make me this way. So we're having, you're, you're seeing um, LDS therapists saying, God also gave you agency. And that's the, that's the you know, the, the key to the solution here. I don't know, does that, does that answer your question? Well, that, that, thank you for sharing the personal experience. And I'll also note that what the church is teaching and the manuals that is producing on these things and what actually happens in a therapeutic session, there may be a huge distance between those, right? So, uh, you know, there are lots of subversive ways of getting around, uh, getting around some of these uh, constraints.
Yeah, it, it quotes from people who say that they have overcome their homosexual desires. It has people, you know, giving those sort of testimonials. And then other people say, I haven't and I don't expect to, you know. Um, and so there is a kind of a space for multiple sorts of identities that are, that, that's created by the website. Its primary purpose, as I understand it, is to actually change the attitudes of church members uh, to, to be a, a more, uh, to create a more open and welcoming environment for gay identified individuals who are also celibate, right? So um, there is, uh, uh, it's, it's directed primarily at LDS congregation, non-gay uh, members of the church to, um, to stop stigmatizing. And, and part of this is because in the Prop 8 campaign, the church demonized homosexuality so much that uh, and its membership really internalized a lot of these fears of you know political fears of homosexuals as being the, a threat to the stability of the nation and so on um, that it felt that it needed to sort of correct that uh, correct that with having a you know, sort of kinder gentler version as well but I don't know that's that's how I read that website I guess. Well, it, it will vary depending on where you are, you know, and, um, and depending on the discretion of a lot of, uh, uh, you know, of local leaders. So it's a highly centralized and highly, you know, uh, uh, you know organized church in terms of disseminating that information. Uh, and there is a relative amount of consistency with the way that it's implemented, but there, there are a lot of variations. I'm, I'm surprised sometimes by the amount of variations that I, that I hear about in, in depending on where you are in the country and who your church leader happens to be you know, during, during that time period. So um, it, it's in part why I wanted to stick to the discourse rather than actually getting into the practice because it's, it's so messy, you know, but you know. question. Good question. Good question. I don't know. Yeah. Laura, no. you alluded to uh, well, I a wish case I that could. I think many of us may not be familiar with. Yeah, I, I'm no expert on this. I just recall a very, uh, very, very well-known Mormon feminist whose husband came out as gay, and then, and, and this has been a number of years ago, he had AIDS, and she wrote a book, um, which I probably read at the time. That might be 20, you. goodbye. I love you. Do, do you want it, have you looked at that at all? About, because I don't honestly know how she, came down with a position, I think it may have been a position of love, 
but rejection of the behavior. But I, but I may be wrong. I, she may have become, um, a re I know she's an advocate for not stigmatizing and oppressing people, but I don't know how far that goes. I think that, you know, from, so there are a few well-known cases. I talked about that television show and it interviewed a lot of these women, right? I think a lot of these women say, well, he may be gay now, but he'll be straight in the afterlife, and so it's, that's okay, right? So we have, this, we have this loving relationship now. It's not, maybe not as, as sexually fulfilling as it might be, but it will be eventually, some, something like that, so. knowing it exactly, right, what happens, but it does seem to be that those relationships and the sex that happens in those relationships or the physical intimacy that happens in those relationships can do a lot to undermine the hetero-homo binary. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's potentially very interesting mm -hmm. uh, on, on both counts, right? We, I think if we can, if we might be able to um, not assume that there's no sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. That might be the case for some, <laughs> um, your, your study seems to be centered then in the uh, activities within the United States. Uh, is there any, anything that you point to or notice on an international scale within the Mormon community that is different or interesting to point out? 
I, not, not that I'm aware of. You know, international Mormonism is still relatively young in, in some respects. Um, so, uh, so the way that these things have developed in the, and, and relatively small, at least in some locations. So it hasn't had the benefit of a lot, you know, the kind of diversity and cultural engagement that you might get in, in other contexts. So I'm not aware. Though in, uh, the church has gotten involved internationally in anti-same-sex anti marriage politics. Um, once again, the church has entered into this issue in Mexico right now and is actively funding a, an opposition to same-sex marriage uh, uh, campaign there. Um, it didn't go so well here, so I'm not sure why they're doing it again. But um, uh, so the church isn't getting, and, and the kinds of conversations that may develop in Mexico around this and the tensions that that may create among Mexican Mormons, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not aware of yet. So yeah, it's, that's ongoing right now. So. I hope at least a dozen or so people will read my book. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I just want to, you know, say something interesting, and that's as much as I want to do, I guess. So I, whether or not it will have a larger impact, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to say or, or to, you know, have as a goal or something like that, you know. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I have much more modest goals. Say something interesting. <laughs> Well, all right, so I'll say what I, what I do want to do, okay. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, this issue is something that lots of Mormons are thinking about. Lots of people who are looking at Mormonism are thinking about how is Mormonism going to deal with this, right? And so I'm hoping that some of the destabilization to uh, what is taken to be the received Mormon understanding of these things will be useful in... Um, addressing this issue in the future. So um, I think to the extent that I can both destabilize the way that Mormons have, uh, have, have thought about the, uh, the, the topic of, of same-sex relationships and the alternatives that I can provide may, you know, I, I would hope that they may be useful, but, but I can't, I, I, I don't know whether they will be or not. I, I'm not a believer in, you know, uh, a linear line of progress, you know, uh, necessarily. So. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Yes, we will. <laughs> um, uh, what a fascinating project. And thank you all for really great questions. I think that um, your modesty about your aspirations for this um, are have already been belied by the conversation, <laughs> not to mention the 20,000 downloads of that article. Um, uh, but what I do think uh, you're bringing to the table that is just so rare and so valuable is this very systematic and helpful approach to the history and the discourse so that we can be speaking about this from an absolutely clear um, vantage point. And 
that combined with these modest aspirations, um, uh, I think we've already seen just how fruitful that is and that Karen, uh, it's worth it. <laughs> uh, to do the work, to do the hard work, to provide real scholarship, to provide a basis for, uh, so that there can be a conversation within a community that also then, as you've shown us, that lockstep with other communities, um, it's, this is going to be really valuable. So thank you all for your additions and join me in thanking Taylor for this work. <laughs> <laughs>